This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. You know what, Kurt? I, you know, I don't know if the coat check at this party, they said that they had my coat under the right number. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to get it back. You know, you just look at the person's eyes and you know they just threw it on a pile in the back of the closet there. I think I, I, think I see it lying on the bed behind you here in our <laughs> virtual party space. It's cold up here in Buffalo, Kurt. you got to have the, uh, the layers at the ready. Ah. You know, I'm still just in a sweater down here in Virginia, well, but uh, uh, it, it, it's good to see you, man. Happy New happy, Year's. Happy New Year's. We're here on the, the second to last day of the year, uh, hosting our, hopefully what becomes an annual event, our Insecurities uh, New Year's party with some of our favorite guests from the past year and a half uh, in attendance here today. We'll see who we can get to, to chat on some of their favorite topics as we go forward. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We're going to wander around the, the virtual party room here and just catch up with some uh, some of our guests that we've talked to over the last year, we've been fortunate to have some really good ones, and some of them were gracious enough to come back, and we're looking forward to talking with them again. I can't believe that people want to talk to us multiple times in the same year, Kurt. It's a, it's a tough <laughs> tough bridge to cross, but apparently some folks uh, have had a good time with the podcast, and we hope you listeners out there have, have kind of seen the fun and enjoyment that we get and, and sharing some of the, the wonky and fresh things that we get to deal with, both uh, as practitioners and alongside our guests. All right. Yeah, I, th- I think I see some fun folks here in the in the virtual room. We've got Dan Taylor from Wharton. I think I see Commissioner Purse I over there. There's a VIP for you. Right. We've got uh, Jane Norberg oh, uh, from Arnold and Porter uh, and, and more. So uh, hang in there, everybody. We're going to have some fun and, and talk to some of what I what I hope are your favorite guests on the Insecurities podcast. Hey, Kurt, look who it is, our good friend, Professor Dan Taylor from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Taylor, how are you? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? Thanks for uh, passing me the, uh, the champagne. That's right. <laughs> happy, happy to do it. You know, it's nice to actually talk with you instead of just, you know, trading barbs on Twitter for, for once. <laughs> well, they're not barbs. They're, you know, for the, the benefit of society and educational debate. And uh, I think it's good that everybody get both sides. I think that's that's Twitter's yeah, mantra, right, for the <laughs> educational debate. <laughs> oh, for the good oh, of society. You got it. So, Professor Taylor, we're here. It's December, end of the year. How'd the first semester go this year uh, with everything going on? Uh, semester went very well. Uh, fantastic, in fact, closing out on a high note. Uh, so, uh, yeah, looking actually looking forward to uh, to 2022 and seeing what the uh, what the new year brings. So uh, you, you won't be surprised to learn that episodes where we talk about insider trading are really popular with our guests. And uh, you came on with uh, Alan Jagelinzer from Cambridge on episode 38 way back in May. It, it doesn't feel that long ago, but it's been quite a while. We covered a ton of ground in that episode, including 
Rule 10b-5-1, which sort of uh, allows corporate insiders to set up trading plans so they can legally buy or sell company stock. Uh, It's been kind of a big deal lately, uh, Professor Taylor. I I don't know if you heard... But there was a, a, an open meeting of the commission recently where the commission voted unanimously to propose amendments oh, to Rule 10 I'm sorry, could you, could you say that again? I didn't hear. <laughs> I th- it, uh, unanimously, is that? Yeah. Uh, unanimously to propose amendments to Rule 10b-5-1. Uh, you know, why, why don't you tell us what's going on there? You know better than anybody. Yeah, so uh, I guess, you know, the, the upshot is, is that the the proposals got two key flanks, for lack of a better term. The the one uh, proposal is to impose a mandatory cooling off period, uh, approximately four months. I think technically it's 120 days um, between when the plan is adopted and when the plan can first execute a trade. Uh, and then the second plank is additional disclosure around those plans and around those trades. So now on Form 4 filings on EDGAR, there'll be a little blank that'll have the, the date that the plan was adopted and the little checkbox for whether the trade on the Form 4 was pursuant to a, to a 10B51 plan. And in addition, there's gonna be required disclosure in the quarterly and annual filings uh, regarding uh, the executive's use uh, of these plans. So, I think it's a pretty big deal. I think it's been a long time coming. People have been talking about 10B51 plans probably for like a year after they actually got implemented back in the 2000s. Uh, so it's something it's something that's long overdue. And you know, I what I liked about the proposal was it was in fact bipartisan. I think that you know these days we need all the bipartisan proposals that we can get, and the fact that it isn't bipartisan really shows how you know how much these plans need to be cleaned up it's really hard to get agreement uh, on things and, and I was pleased to say there's at least agreement on uh, you know insider trading and, and 10b5 I mean uh, you know Kurt was kind of hinting didn't know if you heard uh, professor Taylor I think we're understating your uh, your participation in in the awareness about this uh, this topic. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice. I've gotten a lot of kudos on, you know, Twitter and LinkedIn, and it's nice to be to be recognized. Um, I did have um, a former chief economist at DERA send me a note saying that he's never seen an academic paper cited so many times in a rule proposal that basically, you know, suggested very similar changes to what the SEC is actually doing. You know, to be honest, you know, it's, it's, I cracked open a really good bottle of wine um, when, when the proposal got through unanimously. And uh, it's, it's really nice to see uh, evidence-based policymaking. I think that, you know, nowadays it's hard to think of evidence-based policymaking. Different teams cite different statistics and cite different evidence in favor of their own view. And in this case, you know, the evidence is somewhat overwhelming. And so it was was good to get consensus on that. It's always nice to have your work cited. Uh, You know, I I think it probably feels better when it's in a positive way. I uh, I recall being footnoted in one of Commissioner Peirce's speeches once, and I'm not sure that it was uh, was altogether positive. But that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Professor Taylor, we're looking forward to 2022. We're asking everybody at this virtual cocktail party resolutions for 2022. Personal 
Uh, you can direct them at a certain agency if you would like to see them have a resolution in the new year. You know, what are you looking forward to with, with 2022 and what's kind of on your list of things you're working towards? Yeah, I'm not sure about things that I'm working towards. Got it. So we're gonna we're gonna put some targets. Yeah, on Yeah, I mean, you don't need to hear like, okay, I, I need to walk more. I need to do some That's more right, exercise. Yeah. Eat more vegetables. The regular stuff. Yeah. That's exactly. <laughs> but um, I am anxious to see. There have been some changes to the Reg Flex agenda that have flown probably under the radar. Uh, they're not sort of sexy or glamorous topics that are going to get your listeners excited. Um, but you know, the SEC is still accepting paper filings. So I'll repeat that. The SEC is still <laughs> accepting paper files. We'll be into 2022, which is another right, year. Right, at this rate, paper, correct. Paper. You know, I think we did the statistics. There's over 300,000 of these filings over the past two decades. They're in the reading room. You guys get access to the reading room now? No. It's closed during code. <laughs> so where are the paper filings going? Don't know. They're not online. So the SEC uh, allows filers to submit some of these paper filings should they choose via email, but it's not mandating that they go in via email, so they're still getting paper filings in. So I would like to see, so low ask, very low ask, hopefully again another bipartisan mm -hmm. uh, proposal. I would like the SEC to require electronic reporting of all filings and get those things posted on Edgar. That's it. Sounds reasonable, right? It's more like, you know, I'm going to sign up for the gym in 2022. Not, I'm going to go all the time, but I am going to sign up. And, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I, you're like, who's against electronic filings? And uh, how's the DIRA cost-benefit cost analysis going to look like there? It's like, oh, what's the cost of electronic filings? Huh, not really sure. What's the benefit? <laughs> Big deal. People can get access to it. Great. And again, you know, should be bipartisan. So I think, you know, it's it's kind of a shame in some sense that I, I think, you know, based on the media and public scrutiny and all these things, we get focused on like payment for order flow and I promised myself I wouldn't say it, but Reg BI. Oh, another yes. another mention. But there's there's some serious information <laughs> plumbing problems that need to get fixed. Yeah. And uh, and hopefully hopefully those will get fixed. Seems reasonable. We hope to revisit with you at our, our what will be an annual event now, our Insecurities uh, podcast, New Year's Eve extravaganza. Uh, well, yeah, as you as you walk around the cocktail, you know the cocktail tables. You know, you should ask people. Oh, have you talked with uh, with uh, with with Taylor? You know, does does it seem reasonable that the SEC should be engaged in electronic reporting? And, and let me know if you find anybody that says no. They still want to see paper files. We'll be checking in with them. It'll be very unofficial scorekeeping here at Insecurity. So not up to your statistical yeah, standards, right. but we'll give you a readout. Yeah. Good. Well, great to see you, sir. Right. Well, happy, yeah, have it. happy New Year. Uh, thanks for making some yeah. time. Yep, my pleasure. Take care, guys. See you around. Kurt, I can't believe it. Uh, for the second time this year, and thankfully here at our virtual uh, cocktail event, we've got uh, Commissioner Purse with us. Commissioner, thanks so much for joining yes. us. Well, Chris and Kurt, it's a delight to be with you. And of course, um, I'm glad that, that you all are serving the kind of cookies that I particularly like for Christmas. <laughs> so that's, that's a good start. 
Well, we were going to serve uh, chocolate-covered cicadas, but we, we ran out, <laughs> unfortunately. Even better. Well, I would have been all over those. <laughs> Commissioner, a lot has happened since uh, we spoke with you back in April, uh, specifically about ESG, but as, as well as other things uh, you know, that have occurred this year. You know, We've got uh, Commissioner Gensler has set out a robust regulatory agenda. We've seen some rulemaking proposals, specific especially to the 10B51 trading plan area, and the enforcement regime seems to be ticking up. What are some of your thoughts on the significant developments or maybe even some of the things that haven't developed uh, over the past uh, past few months? Of course, before I talk to you, even at a party, I have to remind you that my views are my own views and not necessarily those of the SEC or my fellow commissioners. Well, just in terms of the robust agenda, I mean, it is a miracle that I'm actually here at your party, given all that Chair Gensler has put on the agenda. Uh, and I think we're going to see a very active 2022. We've already seen quite a few rule proposals coming out in, in 2021. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what commenters have to say about those. I am concerned about about some of the short comment periods because some of these are, are fairly complex rulemakings. Um, but I think it will be it will be interesting to see um, what folks have to say. And then, you know, in terms of, of the enforcement agenda, um, I think we, we look at those on a case-by-case -case basis. So people are always looking for trends, but, um, but it's also important to look at each case on its facts. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you aren't the first person today that's mentioned uh, some of the short comment periods. We uh, we had Dan Taylor from Wharton on earlier uh, to talk a little bit about the the 10B51 amendments or proposed uh, amendments, and and he also noted the short comment period there. So, uh, you know, there continues to be a lot of agreement around that rule. Well, I hope that we can we can um, agree to extend some of those comment periods because I think we will get a lot of thoughtful. Uh, comments and it's also important to understand how the rule proposals work with one another and that's that's something that people will um, I think be able to comment on but we'll be able to do that better if, if they have that longer time frame yeah, I completely agree you know when we talked to you a few months ago one of the things that we really focused on naturally was uh, was your mm -hmm. speech titles <laughs> and uh, you you have continued to really bring it with some Amazing. excellent speech titles in the last couple of months we've had uh, rat farms and rule comments which was a statement about the unintended consequences of of rulemaking uh, we had a speech uh, about the so-called inside chicken uh, which was about a company's decisions around going public and SPACs uh, of course, back in July, you gave the speech called uh, Chocolate-Covered Cicadas, which we talked about a, a moment ago. But I don't know that any has captured public fascination, like the remarks you gave a couple of weeks ago at the, at the open meeting uh, when the commission voted unanimously to propose rule amendments for 10B51. And you had, you had this fantastic line in there that had social media all... A Twitter. Yeah, he did it. Yeah. A Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> so, here, here it is. Uh, uh, I, I was beginning to feel a bit like the Grinch this holiday season. Singing in Whoville on Christmas morning caused the Grinch's heart to grow three sizes that day. But it was my fellow commissioner's willingness to collaborate and engage on this release with the help of Renee Jones and her staff and Corey Clemmer on the chair's staff that won me over and led me to support this proposal. Uh, chair Gensler, of, of course, replied, I never thought of you as, as the Grinch to which you said something like, just wait. <laughs> it, it, was, it was hilarious. I have to know, was, was that planned? 
that was not planned. Uh, the the Grinch statement was planned um, for sure. It it was it was actually really nice to be able to to um, all be be united on on voting for that particular rule proposal. And I think we all um, shared the view that um, there could be some improvements made here in terms of allowing for a little bit of a lag period between adopting a 10b51 plan and trading on it. Um, of course, again, we'll see what the commenters have to say on that. But as far as the Grinch, I was feeling at the, at the rest of the meeting a bit like a Grinch, so I, I'm glad that uh, Chair Gensler took it in stride. <laughs> it was great. It was a great moment. And, and I can just see all the commissioners holding hands and swaying back and forth, singing in the Whoville Town Square together, especially on that, <laughs> on that specific vote. So uh, 2021 has been a year packed with a lot of different things we've talked about here at this party with many of our guests. But, Commissioner, you know, it's New Year's Eve. We're thinking about 2022. Kurt and I are, are thinking about our resolutions, but we're interested for you, you know, what type of securities regulatory resolutions uh, might you or you have for the commission uh, in 2022? Well, I think the commission should, one, stick to its knitting, so not try to wander outside of its, its area of, of expertise in the area it was charged with by Congress. So one of the, one of the determinants of that, I think, is that we should be um, limiting ourselves to disclosure mandates tied to materiality. And I know that's something that's related to what we talked about before. Um, and then second, I would say we, we should just be humble. I think it's important for every regulator to be humble. And, and the, the area in which we, we regulate is very broad. Um, and we have much to learn from people outside of the commission. So I would say humility is always a good resolution. Third resolution, I would say, is let's uh, lead by regulation, not by enforcement. And that applies not only to crypto, which is an area that I talk about a lot, but I think other areas as well. If there are things that we're seeing that we think should stop, I think the first way to, to address that is, is through regulation guidance. Um, and then if those things are not adhered to, then to, uh, to, to bring enforcement actions. I'm, I'm sure that the crypto kids will be very glad to hear crypto that kids. <laughs> that we're not promoting a regulation by enforcement in the crypto space. Uh, so that's that's good news, I'm sure. Uh, the defense bar might like it too. Uh, but Commissioner, thank you so much for uh, for carving out some time to come and chat with us. Well, you know, it's always a pleasure, and I, I didn't mention Reg BI, so I'm just going to say. Bye. <laughs> Get it, right, B.I. Commissioner, one quick one for you. Any upcoming speech titles we should be on the lookout for? What delicacies no, are we going to get in the spring? Speeches. I can't give any speeches because you all haven't given me any fodder for titles. So I, I'm just I'm just at a loss. So until you all you know, come I, through, it's, it's, it's I guess the, the album names didn't get her last time, Kurt. we got to come up with a better theme. Yeah. No, I, I'm glad I'm glad you said that because I was kicking around this idea that Chris is going to hate. But, uh, you know, since it's New Year's, I was thinking, you know, old Lang Syne, uh, why, why the old materiality rules should still apply. Oh, I like I'm, it. I mean, you listen, know, a good rhyme. That, that might work. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. I don't know if I can come up in, in time with a, with a song for us to sing this evening as the ball drops, but... I'm going to go work on it right now. <laughs> the, lyric, the lyricist. We'll get it done. Uh, well, thanks so much, Commissioner. We hope all the best for you and yours in the new year and, and, and for joining us today. We're, we're so happy to, to get to share this time with you. Well, thanks for having me, and, and I love your podcast, so keep up the good work. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. Bye. 
So, Professor Karen Woody, it's good to be with you again. Um, I, I think since the last time we talked, you spent a couple months uh, on leave or on break from the Washington and Lee uh, School of Law. What, what were you up to? That is right. I was on sabbatical in the spring after a successful tenure vote, which I was very grateful for. Um, and so I was working on writing, uh, researching all the usual academic things, mostly on insider trading type work, also a few things about internal controls that are still in the, in the, in the mix, still working on it. But yeah, just a, it was a nice, much needed, I think, sabbatical. Awesome. Congratulations. Hopefully being on the Insecurities Podcast helped. Uh, helped with that. Yes. I know we, we sat down, God, yeah. it seems seems like yesterday, but it was almost a year ago on episode 30, way back in January of this year, to talk about the Biden administration, uh, you know, and what uh, the regulatory environment might look like after the inauguration. We were joined by UCLA law professor Jim Park as well. And it feels a while ago, not just in the time, but also in the events. You know, that was before this whole thing called meme stocks and GameStop happened. This is before we had this ESG enforcement task force spinning up, before uh, Chair Gensler uh, was confirmed, before Gravir Graywall was appointed as Director of Division of Enforcement. So we've had all these things happening uh, across the, the gamut here. Uh, I don't know if that's because of you taking leave and then all these things happen, uh, or if that's unrelated, <laughs> but what have you been paying attention to kind of on the headlines of the securities enforcement regulatory landscape in 2021? Yeah, I think, you know, you're, everything you mentioned obviously are the highlights, but I do think the bigger picture for me is that uh, I don't see it as much as it is certainly the Biden's administration, Biden administration, SEC. But to me, it really does feel like the Gensler SEC. I mean, ever since he was appointed, we've seen a heavy sort of steady drumbeat of the SEC taking a tougher tone toward things. To me, it harkens back a little bit to the Mary Jo White era of no broken windows. There seems to be that similar tack coming in with this Gensler crew and certainly with Graywall as well. Um, and so I, I almost laughed and I thought, oh, the Biden SEC, I don't think of it yeah. even that way as much anymore. It's much more of a, we're going tough, we're going to have increased penalties, we might back away from no admit, no deny settlement. So it does feel like we're back with the tough sort of cop on the beat at, at the agency. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how much of this is rhetoric and how much of it, how much of it is, is real, but you know, time, time will tell. Uh, well, look, since it's been a year and since you were brave enough to uh, to tell us what you thought might be on the those horizon when we talked to you, wait, I know, I know those pesky predictions. So I uh, want to revisit, uh, you know, maybe one or two of them. One of the things that we talked a, a lot about um, and, and something I know that you focus on is ESG. Um, and that comes out of, you know, your experience um, with with the uh, the conflict minerals rules that's a few years old now, but uh, you sort of said, look, it, ESG information is something that investors are are interested in now, and I think you said it, you said something like you know investors want to know where companies put their money, um, mm-hmm. and you said, and I've, I've pulled the quote here. I, I think all of this is going to come back to the forefront in this administration and in the SEC's priorities. So, um, kind of you kind of ding ding it. ding, uh, yeah. <laughs> But uh, but what what do you think? Is the wind blowing in the direction you expected with uh, with respect to ESG? It really is. It's hard to open a paper at all, you know, and not see that mm. term. I remember this time last year, people were still like trying to remember what this those <laughs> initials stood for and that kind of thing. And now it's in everyone's wheelhouse, it seems. So uh, I think what's interesting about ESG, and as I said a year ago, is that the materiality difference between that and the conflict minerals 
sort of the way in which this came to the forefront is very much, in my mind, sort of pushed um, from the ground up, from investors, as opposed to top down, like straight from um, Congress or even from the agency itself. So it seems almost that it's a response to a, a you know a very loud cry from investors. That said, I think ESG is still tricky and hard to get our arms around because it is such a huge tent. I mean, there's things where E, S, and G don't even necessarily talk to each other in, in, in terms of those three different areas. Uh, and so how the SEC moves forward on this, I think they will take it very piecemeal. I expect to see the climate rules, things like that, disclosures come first. But there are so many other matters that fall under the umbrella of ESG, so I think it will be around for a long time. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, we're going to ask you one more while we got you. You already hinted at uh, hinted at enforcement when we talked to you last year. You, you know, you mentioned insider trading. Uh, you mentioned COVID-related enforcement actions, which, I mean, we were all expecting. Haven't really seen it. Uh, spoiler alert. And, uh, and you talked a little bit about FCPA. Um, I, I mean, I don't know how those are, are sort of shaking out as, as priorities for, I guess, Director Graywall. But what do you, what do you think? No, and I, I, don't, I would agree with you. We haven't seen much, certainly we haven't seen much on COVID fraud as much as we thought we would this time last year. Um, I think, you know, to me, I think where we're going, or where I'd hope to see us go uh, in terms of regulation, enforcement, um, I hope involves crypto. I think that we're never going to get away from that either. That's going to be something that most people are expecting some clarification on. Um, same with ESG somewhat. And then SPACs. Um, I think we'll need to see some additional regulation, um, ju- not only through enforcement actions, but maybe some more proactive, clear rules around those. I'm not sure if we'll see that uh, in the immediate future, but I think that's going to be one that we'll, we'll have to get some additional clarity on. For sure. We're here at our virtual New Year's Eve cocktail party, uh, Professor Woody. We want to know what <laughs> resolutions everybody has. but. With that securities, with that regulatory bent. So if you could prescribe a resolution for, say, the SEC or for Congress related to the topics that we cover, what do you think a good aspirational resolution for them would be? I think there should be some jurisdictional resolution between some of the agencies on these big picture things, and I think Mm. mostly of crypto. I think the, uh, you know, how we carve that up between CFTC, SEC, all that is one that I think if we could resolve that or make a resolution about that, we'd have additional clarity going forward on it. So that's one, and maybe people could put aside some of whatever the the flexing they're trying to do to either (laughs) carve that into the jurisdiction or to to walk away from it, either one. But I would like to see that have additional clarity on sort of which agency covers what. I mean, Professor Woody, I think the SEC has made clear that they've given ample guidance in this space. I mean, (laughs) right? That's why we've only had 11 episodes of our podcast about (laughs) crypto, because it's so Trying to figure it out. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. All right. Well, uh, it's good chatting with you. Uh, Thanks for coming back to visit with us. Always. I'm always happy to be here. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Wishing you a happy new year and all all the best in the next semester. Thanks. Kurt, wouldn't you know it, here we've got our good friend, Professor James Tierney. Professor Tierney, how's it going? <laughs> hey there. It's going well. It's good to see you Good guys. to be chatting with you again. How are things going at the Nebraska College of Law? Did you get through the semester? Papers graded? Everybody off uh, on their, their holiday break? 
Yeah, everyone is uh, off on break. I'm still in the middle of grading, but uh, it's great to see all of my students engaging so deeply with you know securities and business law issues. I'm always so impressed by uh, you know how much they pick up over the semester. So you know, grading it's something that we love to complain about, but uh, you know, I uh, I love seeing it from. Kind of shows you how well you've taught them, right? What they've picked up over the semester. <laughs> so a little bit on you there. Hopefully. Yeah, so so you were with us back on episode 52. I have to say, I didn't notice a huge uptick in downloads after that from students. I mean, you're going to have to put this on the <laughs> syllabus next semester. Yeah, yeah, I, I got to do a little bit. My, maybe I have to hire a hype man or something. You know, some, <laughs> Kurt does <laughs> parties. Do Kurt that. does do parties. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so when you were when you were on the show with us, we talked a little bit about gamification, which is you know using user experience design features, um, you know mostly in trading applications. Was the context we talked about it to uh, to maybe nudge investors or, or influence their behavior? Um, I mean, that's a couple months ago now. So what what's been going on since then? Anything touching on this space? Yeah. So you know, there's. Um, I, I'll say that the SEC has a lot on its plate, right? So if you take a look at the agency's you know, proposed regulatory agenda for next year, they have dozens of ongoing rule proposals, and that's taken up a lot of time with the staff. You know, um, Both the, the GameStop report and the, the DEP proposal or request were both a bit cagey on prescriptions about you know, what the SEC wants to do. And so from this um, you know, point forward, the staff is mostly in the process, you know, just a couple months out from that RFI uh, deadline for the, the DEP report to figure out what kinds of proposals might be um, in the you know, interest of uh, protecting investors and, and the public interest. And so I would expect to hear um, inklings about what the SEC is going to start doing uh, without undertaking formal rulemaking, you know, um, adopting informal guidance, explaining uh, what existing tools uh, bear on this space sometime early in the next year. And then I think from then on, we can probably expect to see separate rulemakings, both for broker dealers and investment advisors, um, you know, on, on gamification and DEPs. You know, the, there are hints beyond the, uh, you know, the regulatory agenda that talk about how the SEC might be trying to address this. You know, the, the agency's budget justification to Congress for uh, the next fiscal year promised that it's going to implement Reg BI in ways that, you know, support investor protection and that the agency's trying to think about ways that they can kind of modernize or, or provide guidance um, uh, in ways that, uh, you know, improve Reg BI and, uh, li quote, lives up to the promise of the name. You know, the SEC also has this notice of proposed rulemaking on the reg agenda for some time, looking at equity market structure modernization. And so, you know, the scope of that has seemed to grow over time. And you could imagine the staff trying to use some of uh, that regulatory space um, to deal with the, the broader, you know, market structure problems in the, the retail investor context. Uh, but for right now, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff going on, and, and so it's probably a time of, of deliberation and processing comments and figuring out where to go from here. It's good for that year-end kind of reflection, it sounds like, <laughs> Professor Tierney. And, and although you, you referenced grading earlier, I think when we spoke, you were talking about uh, a paper that you were working on uh, that's due to come out uh, hopefully in the next few months. Uh, any updates on that? Yeah, so I, I have a couple projects in this space. One is with my colleague here at Nebraska, uh, Kyle Langvart, and this is an essay coming out um, in hopefully the next couple months or so in, in Yale Great. Law Journal Forum online. And we talk about why the SEC shouldn't pursue what we call confetti regulation, you know, direct command and control 
regulation of software design because of definitional problems and litigation risk. I also have a, another paper um, that I, I submitted to the agency in connection with the request for information on DEPs that takes a, a closer look at, at that broader issue of, of gamification. Um, that This is something that I'm, I'm still working on, uh, presenting it at a, a law school conference uh, in a couple weeks, but hopefully that will uh, also be published sometime in the spring. So both of those are up online, and if anyone has comments, uh, you know, they're always welcome. Well, it, it wouldn't be the first time that an academic paper or research maybe nudges the commissioners Ooh, a little bit to, uh, to take there. some action, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so look, I, I understand that things that, that may or may not take shape with respect to gamification maybe fit within what the commission is already doing. Maybe, maybe it doesn't. Uh, maybe they need a little guidance. But, you know, this is sort of like a, a New Year's party, right? So we're looking forward to 2022 and thinking about some New Year's resolutions. So, Professor Tierney, if you were sitting in an SEC commissioner's chair... What would be your New Year's resolution for gamification or DEPs? Yeah, that's a great one. Um, so, you know, I, I have a long list of my own New that's Year's right. resolutions. But, you know, from, <laughs> thinking just from that perspective, you know, I, I guess I would want to take a closer look at the general problem of retail market structure. You know, the agency probably could bear uh, spending a little bit of its uh, attention and resources thinking about the, the underlying problem behind gamification um, and, and DEPs and maybe even meme stocks, right? The idea that we're encouraging people to churn their own accounts in order to generate, you know, noisy order flow that might be profitable for, for big traders. You can think of it as a kind of digital farming, and maybe it's good to encourage people to participate in the market, but maybe not if it just leads them to, to trade more, which isn't necessarily better for them. And so if we do think of it as digital farming, maybe regulators should be kind of thinking about uh, how to address this problem. The other flip side to this, and it's the elephant in the room that I don't think you can um, really tackle retail market structure without thinking about, is the SEC and Congress need to figure out what they're doing um, with a coherent view on crypto regulation. And I am not a crypto guy, and I don't mean to make this about crypto, but all of the uh, kind of really big players in the gamification space, and I have in mind here Robinhood, right? Um, you know, uh, they appeal to a group of retail traders who want to trade crypto. And to the extent that retail market structure is kind of going to be up in the air for a really long time, um, as the regulatory status of crypto remains contested, the more the agency can provide clarity to the market one way or another, I think is going to um, you know, bear on how we think about how brokers um, and other intermediaries uh, you know, influence retail investor behavior. So those are just a couple of things. You know, uh, uh, it's easy for me to say that the agency should think more about retail market structure, but you know, uh, I think there's always room for, for more attention to that. And those are big blocks. I think you'd fit right in on uh, on Gary Gensler's commission because right. I know there, there's a lot on the agenda. Uh, and I love this digital farming concept. Actually, I've heard I've heard that term come up a few times just within the last couple of weeks. So maybe that just suggests we're starting to think about this in a different way. Um, anyway, James, great to see you. Thanks great for chatting with Enjoy us. Enjoy the party, James. Hope you have a great New Year's Eve and a great <laughs> New Year. Thanks to you as well. Hey, Kurt, what, what are you drinking over there at the virtual party? Oh, you know me. I'm always uh, enjoying some kind of holiday IPA this time of year. Got it. Big winter warmer guy. I love it. I, Did I ever know? tell you the story about um, 
Aleworks Brewery in Williamsburg, Virginia. No, but they actually have one of my favorite beers that I'm drinking right now. They've done a coffee stout for the holiday season that is What's it called? delicious. I think it's called Coffee House Stout. Uh, Ooh, you know, very, yeah, very yeah. <laughs> subtle, subtle uh, description. Anyway, I've, I stole your thunder. Tell me about Aleworks. So Aleworks has been a great place. My wife and I went down and did the Christmas lights one year, a few years ago, uh, and, and kind of fell in love with the brewery. They made a winter warmer, which is that kind of nutmeggy, spicy beer that you enjoy around the holidays. And they called it Marley's Lament as a nod to um, Scrooge's partner from A Christmas Story. Charles Dickens anyway, classic. Amazing beer, drank it for four or five years every holiday season. We'd show up at the, the beer store and they'd say, you're the people here to buy cases of Marley's Lament. Wouldn't you know it, Kurt, Aleworks stopped making it in 2016, I believe. Mm. 2017 rolls around, we buy out the store, their last <laughs> bottles. Uh, 2018 rolls around, there is no Marley's Lament to be had. Uh, so before coming back to Western New York for the holiday season, uh, we called the brewery and they told us that they had one case left that was at the uh, store across the street from them. They held it for us. And I didn't have time with the client workload I was doing to, to get down to Williamsburg from DC to do it. So we actually hired a task rabbit to drive down to Williamsburg, <laughs> pick up the beer, drive it back. It was the most painless experience uh, we had had. And thankfully the cost of the task rabbit and the beer came out under what we would have had to, to have it at retail. So. I think we still have one bottle left. I'm sure it is god-awful at this point, being five or six years old, but Marley's Lament from Aleworks is uh, one of our favorites of all time. Well, I, I lean into uh, one of my local favorites. There's a brewery here in Richmond called Hardywood. All of their yeah. beers are amazing, but they mm -hmm. are pretty famous for their holiday beers. Um, they've got a couple that tend to rank among the top few in the country every winter. Uh, they're heavy. They're strong, but you know, if you need something to get you going, uh, Christmas pancakes is oh. is amazing. Wow! Um, yeah, it's it, there's a, a little bit of a sort of mapley flavor in the background, mm -hmm. just the right mm -hmm. amount of cinnamon. Yeah. You know, it's delicious. But uh, tread carefully because that comes in around nine percent. <laughs> yeah, ma make sure you've got your uh, logistical ride or even getting up the stairs sorted out before, uh, uh, you, know, before you do You that. can downshift a little to the gingerbread stout. And, I mean, another delicious, delicious beer exactly. if you want to get closer to the 8% range. But yeah, Hardywood, if you're anywhere in the mid-Atlantic, you can find it in a grocer near you. All right, Chris, so let's... Uh, I, I see... Jane Norberg Jane. in our virtual New Year's Eve party. Right. Let's go. Let's go say hey to how Jane. Jane, how are you? It's great to see you again. Thank you. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. I love these virtual drinks. They're my favorites. <laughs> um, thank you for inviting awesome. me. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, you were with us a few months ago, and, and for anybody who doesn't remember, Jane was the head of the SEC's office of the whistleblower. She's now a partner at Arnold and Porter. Uh, but you were with us for episode 47, which is actually one of our most popular ever. So thank you, thank you for that. People, people just love hearing about whistleblowers and the SEC's whistleblower program. But that's probably no surprise to you. No surprise at all. <laughs> it's a very popular program. That's right, in popular episodes. So uh, apart from the program and the episode being so popular, in the interim, we've seen the Office of the Whistleblower Report come out for 2021. Uh, Jane, you know me. I'm an accountant. Those numbers are insane. 
You know, we've got over 12,000 <laughs> tips received, the most ever in a single year by leaps and bounds, as well as awards going out the door, both from a dollar perspective and those awardees. Uh, more than 1.1 billion, with a B, to 214 individuals since the program has started. What were your reactions to the report that came out a couple weeks ago? Yeah, I mean, kind of the same as yours. It, it was a, an amazing year for the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower. Um, record-breaking number of tips, as you said, record-breaking number of awards received. Um, to put into perspective, the commission ordered whistleblower awards of approximately 564 million to 108 individuals. But the interesting part is that was in connection with 86 different enforcement actions. Mm. Um, so really a, a large number of enforcement actions. Um, and as you mentioned, the number of tips just went through the roof with over 12,000 received, which is up from, I think it was a little over 6,000 last year. So it, it almost doubled, um, which is an amazing, amazing thing in and of itself. I mean, to me though, the biggest takeaway from the annual report was the massive international nature of the SEC's whistleblower program. in the really interesting stat that was sort of buried in there, um, I, I you know, read it word for word yeah. <laughs> since it was my old program, but the one thing that I, I was a little shocked at um, was that the uh, successful awardees from last year that the commission has paid hailed from six different continents. So six different continents is crazy, right? That's, that's so that almost all of only, them, right? <laughs> yeah, that leaves that leaves literally one continent in the entire world that doesn't have an SEC award winner living on it, right? I mean, that is incredibly eye-opening, right? Should be an eye-opening stat, certainly for, for companies who do, do business in other countries. Mm -hmm. um, but even for me, who's been with this program from the beginning, I mean, I knew obviously we were paying um, people internationally, but that that stat was lost on me until I actually read it in black and white and thought, holy cow, never, never when this program started that I envisioned that we would be paying, um, the SEC would be paying people in that many continents. So just a massive international. To our event. large audience out in Antarctica, if you're holding back on reporting to the <laughs> office of whistleblower, call in. I mean, everybody's doing it. 12,000 of your friends are there. Don't be limited by your geography. <laughs> We, I, who That's knows? Right. Maybe it is in Antarctica. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> uh, well, look, I mean, I have to imagine if you love triaging two or 3,000 tips, you've got to really love handling 12,000. Right. So, I mean, Jane, what, what does this mean for the program? That just seems almost impossible to manage. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. So um, actually, the Office of the Whistleblower relies on the Office of Market Intelligence at the SEC to triage the tips um, for the very reason you said. There just um, isn't enough staff in the Office of the Whistleblower to handle everything they need to do on a day-to-day -day, um, with um, uh, supporting enforcement staff on investigations and then doing everything they need to do behind the scenes to get these awards paid out. Um, so the Office of Market Intelligence triages every single one of those tips that come, comes in. And not only that, all the other tips that the SEC receives outside of the whistleblower program. So, um, you know, hats off to them for the huge um, uptick in tips and, and being able to get through all that in a year. It's a lot, it's a lot of work. And with that, Jane, we're here, kind of New Year's time frame. One of the things Kurt and I always like to talk about are our resolutions. And, and in this case, we want to hear what your resolutions might be, not just for you, but for the Office of the Whistleblower. What do you see them focusing on or would you hope they focus on in 2022? 
Well, I think the Office of the Whistleblower is going to keep doing what they're doing. I mean, the, the staff there that I've worked with for almost a decade, I mean, they're really top-notch, stellar um, individuals. They have a new leader at the helm. Um, my assumption is they're going to keep doing what they're doing, which is um, in taking whistleblower tips, supporting investigations, and paying out awards. Um, so my assumption is they're going to just keep going full steam ahead like they've been doing. And the other thing I would mention, um, if I can just delve into a another whistleblower program, if that's of okay. Because um, <laughs> we mentioned this on we mentioned this on the podcast that uh, that I had done with you that there's this sort of rise of new whistleblower programs out there um, based on the success of the SEC's whistleblower program. And so, in the world of whistleblowing in general, <laughs> my my wish would be for. Vincent to propose rules to the new Anti-Money Laundering Act whistleblower mm. program, which is largely based on the SEC's yep. whistleblower yep. program, but with some confusing exceptions. And so <laughs> banks, firms, and, and um, other clients that I represent who are subject to the, to the program, um, which by the way, the program is active with or without the rules, you know, they, the, these companies would be better served to know what exactly is expected of them under this yeah. new program, especially when they're subject, in some instances, to both the SEC's um, whistleblower program and now this new um, Anti-Money Laundering Act whistleblower program, for which there are no rules. So that yeah. that would be that would be my wish. I like that. Yeah, I think it's it's a good one. I'm with you because there are some interesting overlaps, at least in terms of the entities that may be subject to both sets of, uh, or, or to both acts. I can't say both sets of rules, but maybe maybe soon <laughs> yeah. I'll be able Technically to. Technically <laughs> speaking, of course. Uh, well, it's it's really good chatting with you. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for coming to the party. It's good to see you again. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for having awesome. me. Well, happy holidays, Jane. Take care. All right. So, Chris, do you know who I see on the other side of our virtual party room? I mean, it's no. so packed here, Kurt, I can't tell. <laughs> it's none other than Professor J.W. Verrett, one of the oldest friends of the Insecurities podcast. Professor, thanks for being here. How you doing? Cheers, gentlemen. Happy New Year. Yeah, happy, and to happy you, oldest only in your tenure of support, Professor, not in your actual age. We've got some older. <laughs> we won't share who those guests are. Uh, those supporters are, but <laughs> glad to have you here. Yeah, it's good to be with you. We were just talking about uh, Old Lang Syne with Commissioner Purse not not long ago, uh, and so it's good to uh, to remember an old acquaintance. Uh, yeah, Happy New Year's. Happy New Year. It's been a crazy year for securities law, right? Oh, gosh. Uh, we'll, we'll get into it, and we have been all night. Uh, we had to hold Kurt back. He almost got into fisticuffs <laughs> with, a, with an unnamed guest. Hey, uh, rugby I'll do that to Oh, rugby I'm guessing. I was going to ask, exactly. what do you think the topic was? But I guess that's pretty, <laughs> pretty much. So, so, JW, you came back on the podcast in what seems like forever ago. February of 2020, uh, we met in person the offices of the Securities and Exchange Commission with... What's that like? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't know if we could do that anymore. <laughs> with uh, and, and thankfully with uh, then-Commissioner Rob Jackson in his office for the recording. And we focused on market structure issues. And I think, you know, we were probably a bit ahead of the curve, right? As, as 2021, uh, you know, a year after our recording really came into view, uh, focused on those market structure issues. Everybody is talking about PFOF these days or payment for order flow. We've had uh, our good friend and, and your friend as well, Ty Galosh, on a previous episode to dive into that. Um, but you wrote a paper 
Yes, what's that? <laughs> good good, good friend. friend. Not a good friend. Maybe not so good. That's true. He's not here to defend himself. We'll, so we can we'll go wait there. for Ty's tweets on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and in that vein, uh, you actually wrote a paper defending the SEC with their position on payment for order flow. Interesting. Tell us a little bit about that. That's right. I have, like many relationships, I have a complicated relationship with the SEC. So I did, I did a paper uh, a month ago. Um, my friend Dan Gallagher at Robin Hood, uh, and we have been friends for a long time, wrote a paper, uh, told Barron's that he's going to sue the SEC if they ban payment for order flow. It's at least in their equity uh, platform, it forms you know, a majority of their revenue, right? So I, th I said, you know, if he's going to make a bold claim, I'm going to meet my friend on the debating uh, arena and I'm going to do a paper. So I have a paper. Why Robin Hood's threat to sue the SEC will f is unlikely to succeed. Uh, and uh, I sent it to Dan to take a look. I'm waiting for Robin Hood's comments. Love, would love to hear from my friends over there. But I think they, I think they, the SEC would succeed, would be able to survive challenge. And we'll go into all of it. But essentially what I do is look at the challenges where the SEC's lost. Those challenges are primar primarily focused on economic analysis. I've looked at how the economic analysis is likely to look in a new rule banning broker inducements, PPOP, and rebates. And then I say also what's unique about this area is that the SEC has a statutory objective of fairness, which is much more, I think, flexible than what it faces in the corporate governance aspect. There's a fairness directive in the 75 Act amendments uh, and, and in various other places that regulate both broker dealers and that regulate uh, exchanges. So, uh, yeah, I think they should ban it. I think it's just such a deep conflict of interest. It's totally inconsistent with the broker's duty of best execution, which has been described in the law as a fiduciary, having a fiduciary character. I think they should ban it, and I think um, they'll definitely, uh, they'll easily win. And I'm no easy defender of the SEC. In fact, I did a comment letter this week threatening to sue the SEC over the proxy <laughs> advisor rule. Um, or, or saying that someone should sue it and they would win under the APA. But under this, PFOF, I think they'll, the SEC will win. I think a challenger will lose. Um, so, it does sound like a complicated relationship you have with the commission, it is. Professor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds like you're even-handed, right? You know, you're, you're yeah. letting the issues lead you. Uh, so I like that. I like that. But maybe yeah. it's maybe it's more fun to, to be the antagonist. I, I, I don't know. Uh, it is definitely more fun. Yes. Uh, and th there's a, there is an area where you do play that role. But no, sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to say that's a good way to segue to crypto if you want to go there. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> hey, it's almost it's almost like we swapped notes, JW. Talk of the party uh, here. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I do want to talk about crypto. I know it's something that you've been working on thinking about with the SEC's Investor Advisory Committee. Uh, and, and recently you've actually been shall I say, less supportive of the SEC <laughs> with respect to crypto regulation. Uh, tell, us, tell us your thoughts or concerns there. Well, there's a lot to say, but um, let's, start, let's start here. The Howey test, 1946, says what is, a what is an investment contract and therefore security, and therefore required to register, right? That old test uh, is, is, it goes back a long ways, it goes, it goes back to state blue sky laws that preceded the securities laws themselves. So you could call it a hundred year old test that we're using to regulate crypto. Um, I think it's time to update it. I think it's time for a 21st century version of the Howey test. People have tried to do this. There are some groups that have tried to figure out what a new version of that test would look like. I think the SEC's overexpanded that test, not just for crypto, but over the years. So the original SCOTUS language says solely, one of the four elements is that profit is derived solely 
from the efforts of others. I've been harping on that. That word's important. That's just not, that's not like, uh, you know, a, a, something you just throw out there. SCOTUS chooses, chooses their words carefully solely from the efforts of others. That's not Ripple. Uh, and then there is some more complexity, I think, in terms of horizontal and vertical commonality uh, applying to these projects, uh, where I think that so much of the community that creates value here is working toward different purposes uh, and focus on different things such that you don't have that commonality of interest either as on a horizontal or vertical level between the miners and the nodes and the people curating the ledger and the speculators. They all have much different interests than people that are investing in a traditional firm. Um, so I think this over-application of the Howey test is vulnerable to challenge, whether the SEC is going to fall in their face in the Ripple case or whether it'll be a case after that. And I might do an amicus brief on this at some point and jump in the fray. Uh, if the court will let me file, because uh, I, I think Howie is vulnerable, at least the SEC's overexpansion of it. And uh, I think that if I make a prediction for next year, it's that in some case, maybe Ripple, maybe another, I think the SEC is going to uh, get ahead of their skis and they're going to lose the same way they have in over application of insider trading doctrine a number of times and a few other ways. I, I, and I, I think that's going to be a fun SCOTUS case to have. Maybe, maybe we'll be applying the Ripple test uh, going forward after next year. Who knows? I was going to say the Howey test is obviously named for one of the parties in that issue back in, like you said, the 1940s. Why don't we get the Verrett test? I mean, let's not limit it to the actual currency. Let's get someone writing into with some good names here. Uh, you mean, you're saying I should do a, a token offering and then get sued and then, then it'll, I'll be a name party? <laughs> Listen, as you know, it's, I am not an attorney, JW. This is not legal advice. <laughs> it's a tough it's a tough road to hoe, but if anyone can do it. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Oh, man. Well, we'll, we'll see if we can find you counsel somewhere along the way. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. we'll, we'll try to connect you with other guests of the Insecurities Podcast, maybe to, to oh, yeah. put that together. And, yeah, in that yeah vein, I, I, and I don't want to just totally fight the man here. I think the SEC um, you know, should be reasonable, should accommodate, should be flexible. They've done it before when institutional investors started talking to each other and they said, hey, proxy solicitation rules don't work for us. We'd like to talk to each other. They totally revamped the proxy solicitation rules to deal with the rise of institutional investors. They changed delivery for all the kind of filings to accommodate email-based delivery. They've done stuff like this before. They could do it for crypto if they really had the had the, uh, the, the, the willingness. Mm -hmm. We've been polling all of our guests here at this virtual cocktail party, uh, Professor, for New Year's resolutions. And this, this is something we want to hear from you, maybe personally, but also kind of just Securities regulatory hopes for 2022. What what do you hope, say, a, a given agency may resolve to do in 2022 for the betterment of the markets, or or are you just going to try to learn Spanish finally this year, Professor? Uh, no es posible. Uh, <laughs> Further along than many of us. <laughs> yeah. I uh, uh, I hope the SEC bans PFOF. I hope the SEC accommodates those token projects that want to register. I hope they take a better view of Howie. I'm going to be disappointed in the latter two, but I think I'm going to win on the first one. Uh, my own personal resolution, um, you know, just seeing the the policy debate heat up in Washington over uh, blockchain, over the future of Web3, cryptocurrency, all of it. I think I've sat on the sidelines too long, and I think I'm going to get more involved in 2022. I've done some op-eds about Howie and about the Ripple case, but I haven't done nearly enough. I think the future of corporate governance scholarship is... Digital autonomous organizations, what are they going to mean for theory of the firm? Because they're not firms. They're not firms at all. And this theory of the firm underlies 
all of corporate governance, law and scholarship. So I think marrying that with the dynamics of DAOs and how they work is the, is going to be the future of corporate governance scholarship. Maybe I won't make any money off of it, but um, I think I'll be ahead in the law review citation race anyway. <laughs> hey, that counts for something too, right? <laughs> A lot of artists aren't recognized until well after they're gone, Professor. So maybe that'll be you in this case. Well, thanks, boys. Absolutely. Uh, well, thanks so much for uh, for stopping by to talk to us and uh, happy New yeah. Year's. I think I see somebody over there you should go meet. Yeah, all right. <laughs> That's right. In our crowded room here. Yeah, happy, right. happy New Year. And, and I'm sure we'll be talking in 2022 with, with whatever we can come up with on the Insecurities Podcast. You're always welcome with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. So we've heard from some of our guests what their new year's resolutions are in the securities regulatory enforcement whatever space chris what's on your mind what are you wishing for in 2022 this will be the year kurt that i eat healthy work out learn spanish ride a bike just like uh, last year all, all those things i started last year in january that didn't pan out um you know for me i always try to pick one or two things personally and professionally to, to kind of focus on um you know we've got a couple of you know, procedural systems within our accounting firm and, and just as professionals otherwise that I'm trying to, to kind of update. So things about, you know, contacting clients and, and managing our, our budgets and, and making a better plan. So that's kind of the boring uh, side of the resolution <laughs> coin for me. Uh, you know, on the exciting side, you know, my wife and I are hopeful that we'll be able to, to close on a house here in our new city. Uh, yeah. So that'll be kind of the new resolutions will all be about, you know, upkeep and, and uh, you know, making sure things are are uh, good to nest in for us as, as we move forward. So kind of open-ended, you know, I don't really have a, a list of things. Keep going to the gym. Uh, you know, I always try to be a little bit nicer to people every year, uh, usually in January. That that wears off by March, but, uh, you know, try to, try to you know, let people know I appreciate them and, and their, uh, you know, their, their help in, in my life and my journey. And Kurt, you're a big part of that. So I'll, I'll start off 2022 with saying I appreciate being able to do this podcast with you. Right back uh, at you, buddy. Yeah, good. I was going to say, hopefully that's a reciprocated. Radio silence. <laughs> it gets real awkward here at the virtual uh, party. But, uh, you know, Kurt, what are your what are your resolutions? I know you got a lot going on in, in your life as well. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm always striving to to get the balance right in my life, you know. And the thing that's that's, that's kind of new for me, uh, it's not that new, but it still feels new. Is just adjusting to this work, work from home. You know, I changed <laughs> firms in 2021. Uh, we've got a new policy at the firm where people can work from wherever they want. So I think I'm going to be in this home office a lot more. Still going to see <laughs> Your background's my background's <laughs> not going to be changing. <laughs> still going to to visit friends in D.C. as as often as I can safely do so. But mm-hmm. you know that that brings with it. Um, a, a little bit of a rebalancing, so just you know, trying to figure, trying to figure that stuff out. Um, yeah, and just really trying to make next year better than the last year. Every, every yeah. year, that's something I try to do. Um, if if I had, do, you, do, are you successful every year, Kurt? Is is was 2021 <laughs> the best year ever? <laughs> I don't know that it was the best year ever, but uh, you know, despite everything going on in the world, I've been very fortunate. It was a pretty pretty good year for us Great. here in the Wolf House. So yeah, looking forward to 2022. Um, on my wish list is that everyone who is hung in long enough to hear this. Like, rate, review, share with your friends. Yeah, (laughs) the last minute pitch. Click the button, (laughs) smash that subscribe button below. Absolutely. Uh, No, anyway, buddy, uh, happy New Year's to you. Looking forward to doing this again in 2022. 
We've got a lot of great content already on the list for those uh, those of you listeners interested in, in following along. And I know uh, we'll find ways to deal with whatever uh, you know interesting cases or ideas come up along the way. So it's been a, a great uh, great experience here. Two years in now, Kurt. Uh, to this podcast we can't be more gracious uh, to our production team at pli and all the support we've gotten from the practicing law institute's leadership as well as our firms that we work for have been have been so great in helping us uh, spend time and effort and, and some good insights into what we're doing here so um, we'll see if we hit that twenty thousand download mark here in the next couple of weeks and then uh you know to the moon from there to the moon thanks for tuning in Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.